afternoon, Edward. Thank you for coming into the podcast. Appreciate you making the time and coming over to Gilman. How are you doing today? Good. I only am doing this so I can get out of a requirement this afternoon. <laughs> what uh, What is happening over at Loyola right now? They're making a video to welcome incoming students, to convince them to come to Loyola. And so we have about 800 students out in the drizzle acting excited. <laughs> What's happening right now in your classes over there? We're reading in 11th grade, or I'm reading, most of them are not, Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Mm -hmm. They're not doing the reading generally. So today we had a student who had his phone out before class started. He went to sleep, and then he had his phone during our exam, which is our little religious period, uh, just happens to be at the end of this class. So I called him up after class and took his phone, and I said, look, I'm going to call your, I want you to go home and talk to your dad. Tell him what went on in class today and see me tomorrow. Tell me how that conversation goes. And then I'll decide whether I'm going to call your dad. And he goes, please, please, anything but this, anything but this. And I said, look, you know, I've been telling you, you you're too smart. You know, you, you're not putting forth your best effort. And I have learned you're more scared of your father than you are of me. I'll do anything, anything. I'll never take my phone out again. I said, well, let's see what happens tomorrow. Why don't you come by and see me? I said, but if you don't talk to him and I decide not to call him, then the next time I'm not going to give you this opportunity. I'm just going to call your dad. He goes, what, what do I have to do that might be wrong? I said, look at me the wrong way. <laughs> so he is not happy. But So do you, have a, do you have a phone policy in your class? Do you make them put their phones away during class? Do you ever have issues with, with that? Yeah, I mean, like everybody else. So I don't let them take their surfaces out until I say we're going to take them out. So they sit at their desk, we're in a circle, and they don't have technology out. Because, not because, I mean, I do think technology is way overrated and overdone and all that sort of stuff, but it's the default mode. And I want them to get used to just not automatically opening a screen when they don't know what to do. And for like the first two weeks, they just kind of sit there and shake. And then they get used to it and they come in, they have conversations. I don't know what they're talking about. They don't talk about English. They can talk about anything they want, but they get used to it. And so they don't get their computers out. And when they do, I say, why? I just look at them and say, why? And they look at me and they have no idea what I'm talking about because they have the phone in their hand. They don't even realize it. So, you know, it's like, you know, I don't know, speeding on 83, you can sort of mitigate the damage, but you can't get everybody to go the speed limit. So mm -hmm. it's not about, it's, with teenagers, it's not about being authoritarian. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's about like, let's work this out between us. And, uh, you know, it usually works out pretty well. Mm -hmm. So what are the courses that you're teaching? You've got the sports lit class. It's technically called Sports Lit and Culture. Have you always taught that, or is that something new that you've worked in? Well, it's my second year at Loyola. I taught something like it at St. Paul's years ago, uh, and then I teach uh, our 11th grade world literature class, which is college prep, which means standard English. So we're just looking at you know other literature from other cultures. Mm -hmm. Um 
What uh, can you talk a little bit about the the exper- experiential writing classes? I thought that was really cool. So I taught this class at St. Paul's called Experiential Memoir, and we did two things every week. One was is we had a subject matter, which would be let's say transportation, and I'd give them like nine or ten things to choose from. They could go to the airport and just spend an hour at the airport. They could get on a bus line and just take it in one loop and just, they could go to an intersection and watch for an hour and just see what happened in that hour. And so there was music, there was uh, hanging out with family, there was cooking. There were these different categories each week. And then they would write about not necessarily their experience, but what their experience engendered or reminded them of. And then we would have a field trip every week, mm-hmm. which sometimes would be tied into the theme, but sometimes not. And the field trips would be like uh, we would go to Greenmount Cemetery for an hour, and they could just wander around. There were no rules, just you have an hour here, and then we go back, and they write about it. I took them to the Towson Courthouse, and they had a half an hour in a specific courtroom. They didn't know that the judge was my friend. So we watched that, and then they had a half an hour just wandering around the courthouse. And then we went back two weeks later after they'd written about that, and I'd sent what they'd written to the judge, and then we had a conversation with her, and then they wrote about that. We made ice cream one time. I had a parent, a mother, complain that kids didn't know how to sew. So I asked if she would come in and teach them how to sew. So she taught them how to stitch up a you know a tear on something and put a button on. I don't know how to sew. I learned sort of. So there were these kind of things, and, you know, it was just fun. You know, they would write about themselves, what teenager doesn't like to talk about himself. So mm-hmm. I was the best class I've ever taught. So we would go on these field trips. Uh, I met uh, the architect of Towson Town Center one day at Alonzo's just by happenstance, and I got to talking with him. And so a month later, we met, the class met him, at Towson Town Center, and he gave us a tour of why it's laid out the way it is. It's three different pieces of property that were bought. That was one thing. And then the other thing was it's uh, it's all about feeling outside while you're inside. Mm-hmm. And he explained how he did that. And if you ever go in there, they have all those domed sort of opaque lights, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just things like that. I'd meet people. I took kids to AA meetings. Um, you know, I, had a, I think I told you this story before. I took the kids to an AA meeting at Shepherd Pratt. It was organized by one of my students' mothers. And one of the students afterwards stayed and talked to her. And then he, she called me to tell me that his father was an alcoholic and he was struggling with it. So I let him do the rest of his writing that year about his experiences with his dad and then at the end of the year they put together books of their writing and so he then gave that book to his father which didn't go well at first but then they reconciled and the father stopped drinking because of the son and what he wrote so you know there was some great moments so i like the idea of the 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 class you there's no real structure to the writing assignments you're not giving them a grammar lesson or telling them exactly what to write they're kind of just your theory on writing, I, I want to talk about this, is just let them write a lot, and then the writing improves over the year if they're writing about things that they care about and things that are interesting. That is absolutely true. Uh, goes against almost all I've ever been taught. 
nobody teaches, nobody coaches basketball by having a six-week session on the rules of basketball where mm-hmm. you sit in the stands and you go over the rules. No, you learn to play basketball by watching and doing. And, you know, the ref or the coach blows a whistle and says, no, no, you have to dribble the ball. Or you can only take one step or you, you know, when situations arise, you, you deal with them. But we teach by letting people do. And then once they're doing and they see the power in that, they're willing to listen to ideas about doing it better and what the rules might be and the rules that you need to know so you can break them and those kind of things. Uh, the hardest thing to do in writing is find your voice. Mm-hmm. And even most adults don't have a writing voice. So I think we don't do kids service or justice by telling them what to do because they're not allowed to ever find their voice. So that's what I hope that some of them will find. And, you know, I tell them all the time that I think it's 98% of everything Hemingway wrote never got published. So this idea that they have to write perfectly every day is kind of a crazy notion to begin with. Even the greatest didn't write great every day. So what what is your group? Like, how do you grade this? Do you read through it? Do you make sure it's interesting and then you give it a grade? Or, like, what is that like? Because you do, at the end of the day, have to have put in a grade in the grade book as much as you probably don't want to do that. But... How do you decide on how good a paper is when it's experiential and it's this person's point of view after going to the mall or watching the sewing well, one come in? So there, there are three things that you judge on, I think. You judge somebody against himself. You judge somebody against his peers. And you judge against my many years of experience of teaching. So you might be a great writer, but go half speed and I know that because I've seen your great stuff and you're just slapping this down. It might be better than another kid's who's really, really trying. He could get a higher grade than you and he should get a higher grade than you because it's not about comparing you to him. It's about comparing yourself to yourself and what you're capable of. Secondly, I, I'm, as I get older, much older, I, I think we set up this whole sort of structure of perfection and most classes, you start at 100, and the first day you take a quiz and you get a 99 on it, you can never get 100. It, the best you can do is a 99.999 or whatever. I set my class up so that there are ways, if you're willing to work, to get over 100. I don't know who made 100 magical. I didn't. I'd like to see all my kids get over 100. I mean, I had a kid once bet me that he could get a 200 and a quarter which means he'd have to write lots of journals. And I bet him, it wasn't a bet. If he did it, I'd give him a drink. If he didn't, he owed me nothing. It was a dare, but because we can't gamble with our kids. But, you know, I pointed out to him that if we have a quiz and he gets 110 on the quiz and he's trying to get a 200, that actually drags him down. And so he worked his tail off that quarter and he ended up with 176. And he wrote and he wrote and he wrote. And I gave him his drink for 176, but I had a kid get 176 and a quarter. His drink meaning is? It has to be less than 20 20 ounces or less from the uh, glass coolers at 7-Eleven. It cannot be a fountain drink because a lot of times I ride my bike to work, so I can't carry a fountain drink on my bike. (laughs) Uh, But I can carry, you know, so it can't be a half gallon of milk, but I can get a, you know, pint of milk. I can get a... I don't know, an energy drink. It has to come from a 7-Eleven because I had a student 
who I did a dare with, and then he found a $13 soda on the internet, and so I had to buy that for him. Uh, so now I try to limit the financial damage by saying it has to be at a 7-Eleven. Mm-hmm. So they will give me three things they want, like, I don't know, Mountain Dew or Arizona iced tea, and I'll go one, two, three, or something close. So does, do the dares, do the bets happen a lot in your class? Did All the time. They bring them up. I don't even remember them. They, they have to remind me what they are. Uh, then I do this thing I've talked to you about, plus two. Uh, that's if a kid just says something that's authentic, they get plus two just as extra credit because I have so many students who just want to get a grade and they come in and they say things because they think they're being smart and it's pretty clear they're just kind of trying to get the grade and be impressive, not to me, but to the whole class. And so, like I have kids who never talk, they're just quiet, they're introverts. And I'll say something, you know, a dad joke, which my jokes are really bad, and they'll smile and I'll just go plus two. Mm -hmm. And the loud kids will go nuts. You know, that's not fair. I've been talking the whole time. I go, yeah, but what you say is so worthless. I don't, and I do not take my, I don't give minus twos. It's only plus twos. And I've instituted a new rule. They cannot celebrate the plus two until five seconds have passed. Mm-hmm. So they can't like give a fist, you know, or go, yeah. You take it away? Yeah. Say that's gone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> excessive celebration. It's like the NFL. Uh, mm-hmm. And I am the grand poobah plus twos. It's, and it's done not for, it's done for two reasons. One, it keeps the kids involved, so they're always thinking, they're always trying to say something smart, but they have to do it in an authentic way. So I have some real charmers, like I'm sure you do. You know, they just can't help themselves, and I tell them, look, charm's a good thing, but you're going to run into somebody like me who's not impressed by it, and you need to have plan B, so that's what we're going to work on this year. Mm-hmm. And so they come in, and they try to get plus twos, and then finally they'll do something. They don't even realize it that's not about being impressive. It's about something they need to say, and they'll get plus two. And then they'll think they figured it out, and then they'll go a month without getting plus two again, even though they try three and four times a class. So can you get a plus two outside of class? Oh, absolutely. My God. I've had a kid in an assembly who's in my class say something, use a vocab word. I go, remind me, that's plus two. They do have to send me a message to remind me. I can't keep track of it all. And they have to tell me why, just quickly, like, laughed at joke. That's all they have to say. And then I have kids who will say in homeroom, for example, about a kid I don't teach, that's a plus two moment. And I go, that's plus two for recognizing a plus two moment. Mm-hmm. So, you know. It, so it has to be authentic. It has to be real. It can't be a pretense. It's got to be just a refreshing, authentic comment. It's got to be like a burped thought. Mm-hmm. They, they don't even realize they're saying something that actually is worth hearing because they're teenagers. They don't know good from bad. And most of what they think is good is actually bad, and most of what is bad is actually good. So I'm trying to get them to see that difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you laugh at my jokes, that's always... <laughs> it's always a plus two. That's always a plus two. So when you read a book in your class, when you have them do readings, maybe in this class or in previous classes, what's, what's kind of the structure of your class after a nightly reading you come in? Is it a conversation led by the students? Is it something that you put on? Is it a writing assignment? What's kind of your go-to after a nightly reading? Well, 
I wouldn't use the word structure with me. <laughs> that's a, that's just, it's like using the word organized. Uh, it, there's thought behind it, but if you're too structured, you miss out on things. So I hate giving quizzes because we're forcing kids to read and we, we know that they, they're like 6,000 ways to get around reading, you know, schmope, uh, schmope or whatever it is, you know, cliff notes and, you know, online, all that sort of stuff. So I try to get them to write about it. Uh, you know, are they taking shortcuts? Absolutely. Uh, but then occasionally they'll, a kid said yesterday, you know, this book's actually pretty good when you read it. And now you got plus two for that because he didn't even realize what he was saying. You know, I mean, that's what I've been saying all year. How can you tell me this is a terrible book and you haven't opened it yet? Um, you know, we live in a different age. I also don't think literature is just books. I think it's movies and podcasts and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's not just, you know, uh, the old definition of literature. I also don't believe, you know, in English, we need to be reading necessarily some of the stuff we're reading when these kids are 15 and 16. The great thing about English reading and writing is if you can read or you can write it, you know, you can read a little bit, you can write a little bit. At 40, you can decide you want to become really a reader or you want to write a novel. You can't do that with nuclear physics. You can't decide at 40, oh, I think I'll just sort of invest my time in becoming a physicist. You've got all this stuff, these building blocks you need. English is not that way. So, you know, I, I can't stand the fact that we are like baby colleges. We should just be a high school. And if we can get kids reading, particularly, you know, in what I call the standard sections where they don't really like to read, if we can get them just reading and liking to read a little bit, we're well ahead of the game as opposed to they need to know Mark Twain or Shakespeare or, you know, whoever you throw out there. Yeah, if they want to read those things, I'm all for it. I've read them. I love them. But I was a reader. And, and the thing about readers is you can put anything in front of them and they'll read it in a day or two. And we say, oh, we're a success. No, if I find a reader and I just keep him reading, I've just babysat. It's taking the non-readers and getting them to read a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You know, think about your lacrosse players. They, The ones who love the game, if, if you don't sh- – have voluntary practices they're out there throwing against the wall every day it's getting the ones who might be skeptical about it who you get to love it those are the ones who you really change to so so i we had a a head of school at um shady side academy named bart griffith on the podcast last week and he used to work here he actually hired me here and he brought in as his book recommendation um Heaven is a playground. Love um, it. Yeah, I've never read it. Incredible. But, but his whole message behind that, I think, the reason that he brought it in, was because of the value of play, quote unquote, and doing things for the enjoyment of it, for for fun, where you kind of get most of the value out of something because you're having fun with it when you're doing it. And he's he was talking about reading in that way because, you know, so much as you know, you're saying is assigned to you. You've got to read this many pages. You've got to get this out of it. And it's hard to have fun or enjoy something when it's kind of being forced down your throat. And I'm going to say this. Education 
you know, it would be better if it was one-on-one. If I met with you, I found out what your interests are. I gave you a book, you know, that was tailored to you. But we've got 20, 25, 40, whatever we have in a classroom. And, you know, we need something where we can maybe compare notes a little bit. But, you know, the great thing about education is, and the bad thing about education is, is that we don't know what effect we're having on students at the time, most of the time. It's 10 years later that our effect takes effect when they're in a job or something, and they don't even realize where that came from. So, you know, I'm, I'm from a business family, a textile family that actually makes textiles to this day. At the end of the day, my brother knows exactly what each machine did and what each employee produced that day. That's not, that's not what happens in education. It's a cumulative effect. You know, it, you, we see it from, if you take Gilman, from ninth grade, I'm just using the high school, where a kid is in ninth grade and where he is as a senior. And I put money that every one of those kids is better off in every sense of the word after four years. They're better writers. They're better readers. They're better thinkers. They're, you know, when they do things they shouldn't do, they have some realization that they shouldn't do them. Uh, you know, they're not perfect, nor are Loyola kids, but they have a sense of their place in the world in, in not just sort of a namby-pamby way, but what is expected, how you do it. Uh, and I think a lot of what we do in education today is 50 years out of date. I mean, handing stuff in on time, showing up for class on time is as important a skill as you know, being able to write a sentence. I tell my students, you do three things and you'll automatically get a promotion. Show up on time for a job, smile while you're there, and do not ask to leave early unless the boss says, we don't really have a lot going on. If you want to go early, you can. But if you ask to leave early, you send a message to the boss, you're not fully committed. You do those three things. 90% of Americans can't do those three things. Show up on time, smile, and stay to the end. <laughs> it really... And my other thing about education is, is we complicate things which are already complicated. Learning is complicated. Let's simplify it. We're talking right now at Loyola about some sort of junior paper, and they want to put in all these rules and regulations and things they have to meet and benchmarks. And I'm like, my God, that just gives them a reason not to do it. I don't understand this. What do you mean by that? Just make it simple. And then the ones who love it will complicate it. For good, for good complications. Mm -hmm. The ones who don't love it will meet the benchmarks, and then all the teachers will feel better about themselves because we got pretty good work out of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so do you um, do you ever have your students, your your classes, pick their own reading, pick their own Absolutely. books? Absolutely. So how does that work? It's called ORP, uh, Outside Reading Project. Uh, they they pick their own book. I I sort of say one fifty page minimum. I just throw that out there. I have a kid right now who picked eight Dr. Seuss books. And I said, okay. He picked three. I said, you got to pick eight. And I want you to read them in chronological order. And then I want to see, what I want you to talk about how he evolves as a writer. I don't care which eight you pick, but I want you to look at the, the copyright date and read them in chronological order and see how he evolves because there is great evolution in Dr. Seuss. I mean, I don't care if they read The Diary of a Wimpy Kid. I've read, I didn't read those books till I was 30 because I was teaching middle school and I thought I needed to read them. And, you know, 
they're pretty good, mm-hmm. even for an adult. I, I think this idea that, that it has to be meaningful and whatnot. I read, I've read every Grisham book he's written. I love him, uh, you know, and I've read War and Peace. So, you know, I I can watch a sixth grade football game and I can watch the NFL. They they both have value. So I don't understand why it always has to be the best. Mm-hmm. So I, I want them picking books they want and they pick them and I almost always approve them. Do half of them read it? No. That's, I mean, I'm 62 years old. I went to a boarding school that had a, a valued honor code that you, when you said you did the work, you did it. Half those people were lying and cheating through their teeth the entire time. And they all have children and, you know, married and houses. I mean, they're not in jail. Some of them should be. But, um, but I mean, you know, this teenagers today are no different than they were 50 years ago. We might have computers, but it's still going to take shortcuts. And we just have to figure out, okay, how do we make it a little harder? How do we get them to see that it matters in some sense. Like I tell my seniors right now, we've told you that get good grades so you can apply to good colleges so you can get into good colleges. Every single senior I teach currently who applied to college, I have a couple of them applied yet, has gotten into at least one school. So what are we supposed to do during the second semester? And I say, you're going to have a lot of, quote, pointless moments in your life. Use this second semester to figure out how to take pointless events, pointless problems, it seems, and work through them because you're going to have it when it matters. Like, it's going to be with a relationship. It's going to be with a boss. And and you're going to say, oh, I did that with Brown back in 12th grade. I can do this. Um, so what, so I have a second semester class, great short fiction, just all short stories right now. Um, what do you what do you do with your senior class that you know they're they're almost done high school, they're into college? What do you say to them? D equal diploma. <laughs> That's what I say. If you don't want to do the work, don't do the work. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. What kind of work do you do, you do with your senior class in the second semester? Well, so, like, you know, we read articles, usually together, and then I have them respond to them. Uh, we watch videos. I have them respond. Um, they have to do interviews uh, of people about sports, and we've been doing these along, and they have more of those. And... They just have to do the work, and whether they get anything out of it or not, I can't make them get anything out of it, but as long as they get a 65, and I tell them, as long as everybody in your household is happy with a 65, I'm ecstatic, Uh, but I don't want to get a phone call because you got a 65, and mom and dad want you to have a B. That's on you, because I give lots of extra credit. So, for example, we're going to a Loyola University basketball game. It's totally voluntary. They get extra credit for going. Um, and this is an example. So they had, I signed it on January 17th, and they had to January 27th to tell me whether they could go or not. They, all they had to say was yes or no, and they got 10 points. A third of the class couldn't even do that. Really? I've sent you an email. It's, no, we have a system. They just have to go into the system and say yes or no. They can oh. put Y or N. And I had two put maybe. One of them with a fairly 
lengthy four or five sentence explanation that made perfect sense. I gave them the full credit. But, you know, this is what I'm talking about is learning to follow through whether you want to or not. Uh, you know, all they have to do is say yes. And then I put them down on a long list. If they say no, I don't put them on the list because I'm not going to buy them a ticket. They get the 10 points. They're not going to get the extra credit for going to the game. The game is extra credit because, you know, if in business time is money, in school time is points. So a basketball game is two, or two hours, so I'll give them, you know, the equivalent of writing a paper. Hmm. And we went to an Orioles game first semester. I had 30 kids go. We had a blast. Wow, that's a good uh, turnout. We have uh, 29 signed up for the basketball game so far. Really? Yeah. Who are they playing? Lafayette. Just It was a convenient day. That's the only reason I picked that day. Uh, they said on their midterms they wanted to do more stuff like that. They wanted to do – we did World Cup pools where they had to predict the winners, and they got extra credit if they were the winners in the class, so we'll do March Madness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm doing – just to make them think. And they – we watched some World Cup games. They all got into it. A lot of them said, I didn't even really care about soccer. Now I do. I mean, I have some people who truly care about soccer, but I have some who don't. The ones who care about it, they were watching the games anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I like the I like the sports lit class. Sounds like it's fun. I mean, I'm not. I played sports and I play pickleball and tennis and everything, but I'm not as tuned in at all as some of the students here and as you are. I mean, I. But see, we talk about sports and how they reflect the life that we live. So, I go off three times a week about refereeing and instant replay and it's all part of this world we live in where we think computers make our lives perfect they don't they just make it different but for every problem they solve they create another one so for every problem you know in the nfl with instant replay you know yeah you might solve this problem but then you've got these games now going four hours long Uh, i'm tired of hearing about the refs being the problem i think you'd make everything strategic you give the coaches X number of challenges, and when they run out of challenges, they can't challenge anymore. So then what we'd be talking about is why they challenged this play in the first quarter that didn't really matter, and they didn't have it in their back pocket mm-hmm. late in the game. That's what they do with timeouts, isn't it? Mm-hmm. They save those things unless they're really, really desperate. Um, you know, in college basketball, you get five, but if you don't use one of them in the first half, you lose it. So that they're always calling a timeout with 30 seconds left. They haven't called timeout in the first half because they're going to lose it anyway. Why not call a timeout? So I don't understand why we're not doing the same thing with challenges. And I don't know what the magic number is. Go hire, you know, all those STEM people to figure that out. Uh, So do you spend time in the sports lit class on different sports or do you focus on one sport or how do you uh, divide it? Is it just anything that you feel like? There's no structure. Do you talk about lacrosse in that class? Oh, yeah. yeah. We talk about, you know, I've pointed out to them how lacrosse, you know, there won't be a face-off in 20 years. I don't, I don't, I don't even think it will be 20 years. Okay, maybe because there used to be a jump ball after every basket in basketball. Mm-hmm. And that gave too big an advantage to a team with a tall guy. And don't get me started on, I mean, lacrosse is a good example of this, but baseball has it the specialization, you know, 
I don't have a problem with the face-off if the ball has to go out of bounds before the face-off guy can be subbed out. But this winning the face-off, throwing it to another guy, and he comes up, steps in the box, steps out, they throw the ball around for a few minutes, well, seconds, until the face-off guy gets off the field and another guy comes on the field, no substitutions until the ball goes out of bounds. No subs on the fly. So they used to do that. They used to have a horn. The ball goes out on the sideline. They'd blow the horn, and they'd be able to to sub that. But what? But why? They make decisions about a six-year-old that he's a defensive midi when he's six years old because he can't catch. That stays with him the rest of his lacrosse life. Mm-hmm. He might be the fastest guy on the team and should be playing an offensive midi position. If we got rid of this, people shuffling on and off then people would have to learn to play both ends of the field. I mean, if you can't play one end of the field, then you go down and you get a long stick and you're just a big goon and you hit people with it. And then, you know, if, or you go down and you play attack and you're all cool and you do all the dodging and, you know, that stuff that, you know, chillaxing with the stick. Uh, <laughs> Did you, uh, were you always a baseball guy? Did you ever have a shot at playing lacrosse? Did you ever pick it I co- up? No, I coached. Uh, I played tennis before I played baseball. And I coached lacrosse, and it's just like coaching basketball. Mm-hmm. I mean, the offensive theories are the same, and the defensive theories are the same. It was, you know, it, and the kids I coached said, like, we did weird things that no coach had ever done before. I said, because I didn't start coaching or playing when I was six years old. So I just came at it blind and said, okay, if we want to improve this, let's try that. Um, I love lacrosse. I, you know, I think it's a great sport to watch. You know, but we talk about lacrosse. We talk about cricket. Uh, we've watched team handball. Uh, we're watching about Coke Beru today. You know what Coke Beru is? No. It's a form of sort of polo played in, uh, I'm going to get the wrong country, Kyrgyzstan or to Central Asia, and they ride horses, and they try to throw a dead goat into a big well. I've heard of that, yeah, yeah. And these guys are intense, and it's all – based upon their culture and they've been playing it for 5,000 years. So, you know, we look at it and go, it seems kind of silly, but for them, it's what they know. They love horses, they're herders, they're, you know, uh, cowboy types and horses are in their blood. And so, you know, it's kind of a polo, but instead of being polo for the rich people showing off my ponies better than yours, this is for the working class. And originally it was wolves because they, they would kill wolves when they were trying to protect their herds. And so then they would come, they would throw the wolf around, the dead wolf. Now, then they just went to a goat because it was easier. So they throw this dead goat around when they're... Well, no, they carry it and they throw it into the uh, well. And if you watch it, these guys are nuts. I mean, <laughs> it's a miracle nobody gets killed. Uh, this is not for the, you know, tame-hearted. This is big time these guys are really intense so you know we do and then we talk about you know we don't i let them start talking about you know we've spent a lot of time on lamar jackson they they didn't understand that nfl contracts except for deshaun watson's are not guaranteed uh baseball and basketball are um you know they they asked the silly question do we sign lamar i said the question isn't do we sign him but how much and for how long I mean, if he says he'll play for a million dollars a year for the next 10 years. I'm signing him three times a day, but he's not going to go for that deal. You know, and so we 
they're not allowed to just say they do a lot of this. I feel this. So I have this one kid who comes in and he says, why is Gary Payton in the NBA Hall of Fame, but Mookie Blaylock is not? Now there's a kid who's thinking, and we look at their stats and we talk about it, or why Derrick Rose won't make them. You know, we get in all these Hall of Fame arguments all the time mm -hmm. uh, in any sport. You know, is this guy a Hall of Famer? And, you know, I tell them, okay, you got to decide what makes somebody great. And, you know, these are good critical thinking skills. Mm -hmm. uh, but just because I like somebody, I mean, they always say, well, I feel he's good. And I go, I feel like you should get an F, so I'm going to give you an F. How do you feel now? And they go, no, no, I've been doing all the work. I said, okay. So there's evidence against the F. So you can't just tell me, oh, I feel this guy should be our starting whatever or, you know. The Greg Roman fiasco, I mean, you know, his winning percentage was, it, for 10 years as an offensive coordinator is 73%. I went and looked it up, and uh, John Harbaugh's is 57. Hmm. I, I don't think firing, or they didn't fire him, he resigned. I'm sure they worked it out. But I don't think he's the problem. Uh, but they'll find that out next year, and they'll find another scapegoat. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's always someone to blame when yeah. you're losing. That's fandom that we talk about what makes a fan. We talk about that a lot because I think it influences a lot of what we do outside of sports. We, we talk about sports and then we take it into the broader picture. Like I say, all you guys are going to be bosses someday. You're going to have to fire people. Maybe. Why are you firing somebody? You know, that's what you need to think about. You know, just because somebody's not perfect, don't fire them. Mm -hmm. and, and they're kind of looking at me like, but someday they'll be in a boss's position, and they'll remember maybe this conversation. Well, so, what, what do you mean fandom? What do you talk? What do you? What do you talk about when you talk about fandom? The difference between emotion and empirical evidence. So I'm not against fandom. I tell them you can hate Greg Roman, you can hate him all you want, and you can want to fire him. But that's, it's like fantasy leagues, or it's like playing Monopoly. You're playing with somebody else's money. Mm -hmm. They always want to say, we need to sign this guy and that guy and this guy and that guy, whatever sport it is. And I'm like, it's not your money. Yeah, you should sign him. It's not my money either. I, yeah, Bashadis, keep spending your own money. As long as I don't have to spend it, I'm great with it. But that's not how the world works, you know. Uh, you know, they, they complain about the food. It's too expensive, you know, in our dining hall, I know you all solved that problem by just including it in the tuition, which I think is where most private schools will be someday. But, you know, I, I say to them, have you been out to a restaurant recently? And then one day they said, oh, the food's too expensive. The rice was undercooked. I said, hold it. Those are two separate issues. Uh, you, how much it costs and whether it's done well or not are two separate issues. But, you know, you just got to call them on their BS because that's what they do. That's what I did at that age. That's what I still do. Uh, I mean, if I can get away with it, you know me well enough. I'll BS you all day. <laughs> I get away with it a lot because I just say it like I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's true. That's a, that's a skill, though. And I just tell them, look, you guys are pretty good at it, but you're messing with Babe Ruth, and I'm better. So yeah. you, better, you better do not bring a gun to a drone fight. <laughs> We're going to modernize that knife to a gunfight. So I, I bet you at the end of the course, 
the fact that they're writing about things that they care about, especially in the sports lit class, right? Because I listen to Gilman guys talk about sports all day long. They're so passionate about it. They're so into it. The fact that they have to write about these issues that they actually care about, I feel like by the end of your course, they probably like writing a lot, a lot more than they did. Yeah. I, I don't think they ever really realize how much they're writing because they're writing about things they want to write about most of the time and and i always tell them if you don't like what i assign go write about something uh so i like in their journals supposed to be about sports i give them some options and then i say pick a topic of your own choosing and then some kid will write about you know his girlfriend dumping him which i'm not gonna i don't take points off for that it mattered to him so he wrote about it uh you know they most of them write about sports most of them hate when you don't give them a topic, but most of them hate when you give them a topic and they have to do that. Mm-hmm. So you try to straddle those two things. So here's some ideas so you can't say you didn't know what to do, but if you don't like my ideas, come up with your own. Yeah. Seems reasonable to me. Uh, I mean, I, I just, the, in the in the publishing world, you know, we don't expect the, the writer, I mean, he gets to, send it in and have editors go over it and they send it back and you go back and forth. I mean, that's the way the world works. I, you know, school should be more like the way the world works, which is, you know, I don't mean collaborative. I mean, yes, you can have kids collaborate, but you know, it's not just do this. I mean, a lot of my work is if you do it, you get credit for it. I believe if you do work, you learn something. I keep telling them, you may be learning right now that this is the biggest waste of time class of all time, but that's an important lesson. You learn something. So I've been I've been trying to incorporate a little bit because I I've always wanted my students to write more because I feel like in the past that I've had them do analytical writing and I've spent so much time grading and almost nitpicking and focusing on the grammar. But from talking to you, listening to you, I do believe that the more that you write, the better it is that you're going to become at writing. So I've just been giving them writing assignments to do, and hopefully. I'm trying to give them things that they want to write about so that they're not so, really noticing that they're doing schoolwork. Are you seeing a change? And they're writing. I mean, I've, li- I've looked at what they read for, wrote for today, and it's much better. I mean, I just I feel like they've gotten better at it just simply from doing it more. Do you want to read 50 essays about why Huck Finn is a Jesus figure? No. No. And that and that was always my least favorite. So I always said the past maybe three, four years of teaching, my least favorite part is grading because it takes so much time and they don't really read the comments or at least half of them don't. So give them one comment. The title stinks. <laughs> and then they'll make write a better title next time. Yeah. I mean, or, or this is great for, for the first page and the last four pages. You're just filling up pages. Uh, you know, it, it's no different than in sports. You know, go read the inner game of tennis, which I think is the ultimate way to think about, you know, looking at sports and coaching sports. And the idea is, is you give somebody one thing to work on and one thing only. You know, like you don't tell a cross guy to, you know, work on his left hand, work on his right hand, work on his footwork. You give them one thing, and ideally what you do is you pick the thing that's the biggest and most important thing and in doing that, the other smaller things will fix themselves. So, you know, just most of all, my kids, when they're writing about what they want to write about, write 
beautifully. Even, you know, and I, my sports lit kids are not honors, and they'll tell you they don't like English, and they, you know, given their druthers, would not be there. And they're ready for college. Now, are they ready to be English majors? No, but they're not going to be English majors. That's mm-hmm. what I keep arguing. Why are we trying to turn kids into English majors who aren't going to be English majors? It's like letting kids go out and play flag football. Let them play flag football. Stop telling them, you know, to throw a tight spiral and, you know, get on the outside hip of a guy. They're not going to play in college or even, in, you know, the real football team, except a couple of them may fall in love with it and do that. Mm-hmm. But they don't. the reason they're playing flag football is because they just want to run around and, you know, giggle and have fun. You know, I, I, I think we forget why they're doing this. And they're... I mean, I've been teaching for 38 years, and, you know, I, I'm my former students, you know, they, they're divorced, and a few have committed suicide, and, you know, they're they're not perfect. But they, by and large, they get jobs, and these kids who you would go, there's no way that kid will be anywhere but still wearing a diaper at 40. You know, has three kids, lives in a big house, and, you know, and basically, you know, is buying the school where I teach to get ready to fire me. I mean, I mean, they grow up. I mean, we all grew up. We were, we were horrible teenagers. I don't even need to, you probably weren't, but most of us were, um, you know, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So when you were in high school, what were you like at, at boarding school? Were you really into English? Was that? No, no. Were you a reader? Oh, I was a reader and I took every history course, but one that Episcopal offered. I love, I love the class environment. I was, I like school, but I like sports a lot more. But at boarding school, I mean, we did all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, the, the whole rumor that if you put a kid's hand in a bucket of tepid water, he'll pee while he's asleep. <laughs> it's true. We've done it. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, we had a kid who, you know, what REM stands for, the band, right? Rapid eye movement. Yeah. When you, so we had this kid who would go into these deep sleeps, and we'd sneak into his room, and we'd pull his eyelids up and watch him in REM. Mm-hmm. You know, REM, watch his eyeballs go back and forth. I mean, you know, we, I, I'll never forget on Halloween we did uh, musical chairs, and we used these cane desks chairs that we lined up in the hallway and we five or six of them got destroyed i mean i don't remember what books i read but i remember all the crazy stuff we did um you know we had a teacher mr dunlop who we all loved who had emphysema and had one and a third of his lungs cut out because he had cancer or something and he had those little uh, inhaler things that and we would hide them and he would almost die in the classroom. Oh my God. And yeah, it was awful. But I, I, I bet you Mr. Dunlop would have said, these kids love me. I mean, he understood. We just didn't know how to express it. We were boys. But, you know, we would sort of throw one out in the middle of the room. So, oh, there's one. Mr. Dunlop must have fallen out of your jacket. And we'd pick it up and hand it to him. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I was awful. I was, I was a terrible person. Uh, you know, I'm not much better now, but I was really bad then. Uh, and so when people complain about teenagers, boys and girls, I think cave teenagers were the same as teenagers today. They may have different distractions. 
you know, but if I'd been around during social media, I would have put stuff up that was absolutely deplorable and wrong and, you know, jail worthy because I was just as impulsive as the next guy. Luckily, I didn't have that to worry about. So I didn't make those huge mistakes uh, where everybody could see them. And I don't have the answer to that. But, you know, I don't think we, we have to be very careful about what we think of 18-year-olds when they're 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. so, did, so you say the um, kids today are the same as they've always been, but the devices and the phones and the social media and just the world today is different. Does that, like, what concerns you about the world today with the phones and the technology and all that, or, or does it not really concern you that much? It's just the way that it is. I mean, yeah. Well, first thing I'm going to say is when anybody tells me they have something that makes the world better, I always say it makes the world different. Stephen Jobs was, you know, this man who made the world better. But his three greatest inventions, all they did was divide people. You know, the the personal computer, the iPod, and the iPhone. You know, you you and I don't have to sit face to face. I think 10 years from now we'll have conversation class. Our kids cannot hold a conversation generally. They always ask me, how do you talk to a stranger? And I go like this, hello, my name's Edward, what's yours? That's how you talk to a stranger. You have to do it. And, I mean, you know, just like we had concerns, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, the concerns are different, but it, the world goes on. And, uh, I mean, you know, I, live, I lived in a house that had a bomb shelter, a quote bomb shelter, just had reinforced I-beams in it and a, a locked box that supposedly had stuff for if a bomb hit. Kids today don't live with that. They live with, you know, all these school shootings and whatnot. And, you know, I'm not here to say that that's not a problem, but it is. But everything just kind of goes around and, uh, you know, we're divided. And I hear from my sister-in-law, I'm sure she won't listen to this podcast, that it's never been this bad in American politics. And I go, how about 1860? I mean, we fought a four-year war. That's how bad it was. I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of people dying. So, you know, we tend to take where we are in the moment and say it's never been this bad. But then if you take the long view, and I keep pointing out to my students, this is why you need to know history. You, you know, they want to talk about the GOAT. They'll always say, is it MJ or LeBron? And I'll go, I'll take Wilt. You know, and they'll, oh, my God, no, you know, and I'm like, and then I'll say Bill Russell, and they'll go, who's he? And I'll say, that's the problem. If you want to talk goat, you need to know history. And so pull the lens back. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to correct things or be on top of things, but we shouldn't be chicken little either, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. running around, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And I think, you know, that's social media will figure itself out i'm not on i mean i am a little bit like on strava which is technically social media because you can chat back and forth but i'm not on next door uh you know i've talked to cops who tell me that in the southeast district of baltimore city where i live that crime is down you look at next door and they all the neighbors tell me how bad crime is because that's the only thing that's reported yeah i mean it's like the news you go on the news you watch the news and it's horrible yeah it just speeds that up a little bit because you can scroll through at your own pace now. Right, and you can go find what you want to find. So you, whatever your bias is, you and I don't mean political bias. I'm talking about any bias. If you believe 
that Mookie Blaylock should be in the Basketball Hall of Fame. You can go find 20 articles that argue that Mookie Blaylock should be in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Well, I was ta- I was talking about this. You don't this even know who Mookie Blaylock is, do you? <laughs> Played at Oklahoma. Um I was talking about this with my class a few months ago when the whole uh, art exhibit protest was going on, when the people snuck into the art museum or brought paint. Or and threw, threw stuff soup, on the paintings? Threw soup on the paintings, remember that? And I, I was showing it, and I was talking about how a lot of social media now is you have to have, to get attention, you've got to have such a big shock factor that people are going to spread your your information out there because otherwise – you're just in the marketplace for attention, and it's very hard. I mean, who's going to notice you on social media now unless it's something that's going to stop people in their tracks like that if you're, if you're trying to get your point across? Well, I mean, I, mean I, I lived in San Francisco in the late 80s, you know, at the height of the AIDS epidemic, and ACT UP, I don't, you probably don't remember the group ACT UP, but they bungee jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge in protest of – how AIDS victims were being treated and the lack of money and research going into it and blah, blah, blah. So I don't, I don't think political stunts, whatever you want to call them, are new. I mean, P.T. Barnum made a – I mean, he was the best at this. I mean, you took a whole hucksterism class. or Humbug. Humbugs. I mean, we're, we're a country of humbugs. So I don't think this is new. But I think if you want to stick around, you know, read right now about, like, about LeBron, and he's a great example. I mean, this guy would have been successful at whatever he did. It's it's not just he's a great basketball player, which he is, but just you read about him and his longevity and what he's doing. And Pat Riley had an article in ESPN last week about how Kareem is the greatest of all time, and a very convincing argument. You know, you can still disagree with it, but I mean, Pat Riley knows his stuff. And my point is, is that. You don't stick around. You don't become a billion-dollar athlete, which LeBron is, by throwing paint on a paint, you know, soup on a painting. Mm-hmm. There's authenticity. There is, uh, you know, hard work. There's all the things you need that we would expect. We've always expected of people to get ahead. Um, yeah, I think I could take the shortcut and you know be flamboyant. And I guess I'm flamboyant in my own way, but it doesn't seem to be flamboyant because of who I am. I mean, my wife, you know her very well. She's always telling me, why are you yelling, you know, <laughs> just because I'm getting all excited. And she goes, there's nobody here. Why are you screaming at the TV? I mean, I scream at the TV. I tell my students all the time, I treat you no differently than I treat everybody else, including my cats and my wife. Uh, you know, it's not. And I just think that. If you want to get a point across, you can make a quick point. But if you really want to change things, you've got to be in it for the long haul. And that has to be authenticity. It has to be a sense of, uh, of truthfulness about you. And, I, you know, so I don't – people – had three people at Thanksgiving say, oh, my God, you must be so patient to be a teacher. I'm anything but patient. And I don't claim to be patient. I'm a bit more patient today than I was 30 years ago. But I'm not patient, but I am authentic. And, you know, I rarely get upset. But when I get upset with the kids, they know I'm upset. It's not an act. It's not like – and I also don't BS them. I don't tell them, oh, you know, 
if you get a D in this class, wherever you got accepted or you're, you know, matriculating to is going to rescind that. I, I've never heard of that happening. I've heard it happening for people committing crimes and doing immoral things, but unethical things like, you know, pranking their friends in really horrible ways. But these colleges aren't going to take away an, an acceptance because a kid got a D or a C in the second quarter. Even Harvard wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, here's the thing. The Harvard students, I had a student at St. Paul's who I coached tennis for four years. I don't think I ever taught him. And I told him second semester, his senior year, he was going to Duke. I told him his job was to get a B in a class. He'd never gotten a B in a class. And I said to him, there's going to come a day when you're going to get a B. And it's not because you did anything wrong, but you're going to be chasing somebody to be a significant other in your life. And you're not going to be the chosen one. Not because you're a bad person, but because somebody's just better mm-hmm. according to the person you're chasing. That's going to be the equivalent of a B. And he goes, how do you get a B? I said, set a timer, work 20 minutes a night on each of your assignments, and when you've done 20 minutes, stop. I said, because you need to learn how to get a B. And I don't mean a B in a class. Yeah. And and he would come about once a week. I go, how's that B going? He goes, not well, you know. And his mother agreed with me. She thought he was a nut, you know. How do you get Braden to relax? I said, I'm trying to work on it, but it's not going well. I mean, (laughs) you know, so I think, you know, and I tell us, we've already talked about it today. Second semester is a time to work on things, uh, to try out things. You know, maybe it is a time to try. I mean, if you haven't done a whole lot of work for three and a half years, how about making this a time when you work hard? I don't know. Yeah, do something new. Do something new. Try something. Well, I like the uh, – so we have a – I think I guess it's a two-, three-week internship program. I'm sure you guys have something similar to that. Where we, they, we don't. We, I, I did in high school, too, where you go with someone and you're just a shadow for their internship program. And I, I am an advisor for that, so I have students coming up to me and ask me what the, should they do, and – I think that's a good time to try things out too. Like you maybe don't want to do a two to three week internship about something that you might probably do in the future. Maybe try something totally different off the beaten track that go hike the Appalachian trail. Yeah. Do something random, do something different. But, but where do most of these kids go and do they go to financial services companies? I mean, Here's your chance to do something really different. Nothing is riding on it. But all they think about is, you know, I had a student today say, but we're supposed to get good grades so we can go to a good college so we can get a good job. And, I, and so what does it matter as long as the grade's good that I'm not really putting forth my best effort? And I go, when you're in that job and you're competing with another company for a customer, just going through the motions ain't going to cut it, uh, you know. And, and so I... But it's hard to tell seniors at the end of their high school career, take a chance, you know, whatever that chance might be. Uh, You know, have you, Heaven is a Playground is about, and I don't know if the guy you mentioned who came on, did he tell you how you pronounce the author's name? Is it Rick Tellender or T. Lander? Uh, Is it T. Lander? Yeah, you know, he played football at Northwestern. Then he was a Sports Illustrated writer, and then he, and maybe still is, is the athletic director at Northwestern. I don't know, maybe he was retired, but 
you know, this is a book about just sitting around a Brooklyn playground mm-hmm. for a summer. What, what would be so wrong with a kid just going over to a skateboard park and just hanging out with skateboarders, you know, for two weeks? Now, everybody say, oh, that's awful. I mean, almost every idea I've ever come up with, you go up above me, you go up the food chain, and they're like, somebody needs to get this nut out of here. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's where things, you, you, you go and you investigate things, and, you know, it may be two weeks where nothing happens. Well, that's not the end of the world. You tried to see if something would happen. I mean, I'm just throwing that out as an idea. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it can be, I don't know. There, there are lots of things. You could just go interview people walking their dogs. Yeah, yeah. I, you know. Well, I think it's um, I think it's a good message, and this is what Bart was talking about with that book recommendation is, like, if you think about youth sports, for example, is so regimented, so structured, and I'm just really thinking about lacrosse because that's all I know, but it's so structured now and it's over the top and you've got practice every night from 6 to 7.30. you got a tournament on the weekend, four games. And I think lacrosse is just one example of how, you know, sports and just youth programs are just over-structured, over-rigorous. And, uh, like, when I learned how to play lacrosse, it was fun. It was, like, in a church. My dad would play with us, and we'd play with a tennis ball. We'd do a pickup game, and it was fun. And that's how I learned That's how I learned to like the game. It was, like, mini-lax. And, uh, you know, now a lot of this is just so structured that you lose out on that exper- experiential, fun, enjoyable aspect to it where you're actually going to learn and see if you like it. I mean, last night we had senior night for our – uh, squash kids and so we played our match against BL and played really well and then we had cupcakes and we said a few words about the seniors and then we were just sort of the parents were staying around and chatting and all the kids were out on the courts playing because uh, there wasn't practice friends didn't have practice after us because they played a 430 match so the courts were available we didn't tell them to go out there and and we didn't go out and tell them what to do, but they were all just out there playing squash. Mm-hmm. And it was so, that made me, I mean, we've had our best season ever. Uh, and the kids like each other and they're fun to be around. And no, when I say our best season ever, it, we're, we're not in the same league with Gilman, but that doesn't make it a bad season to me. And, you know, but to see them just out there having fun and it, it wasn't, it wouldn't put on them. They chose this. And the parents were like, well, we need to go home. It's dinner time or it's this or that. And the kids were out there playing. I, you know, I was stayed out of it. But they had a hard time getting juniors and seniors off the court, mm-hmm. you know, at 7 o'clock at night. And when do you see that? That And that's what you're talking about. Yeah, and that's why I think the book, and I haven't read the book, so I don't know what it's about, but it's about the pickup basketball court. And in you Brooklyn. Just, you, yeah. don't, you don't just see, you don't see pickup sports enough today, I don't think, because it's so structured. And, and then what you do is, you know, that's why you need to read this book by George Dorman called Switching Fields, which is about U.S. Soccer Federation and all its mistakes, uh, you know, and it, it just trickle it's really a book about a philosophical book about you know why 
you know, why would the South, and I'm Southern, why would you want to eliminate, let's say, 25% of your population, blacks, being part of your economic spenders? It makes no sense to me. Why, you know, why, why would you want, you know, in the, why would the NFL want 50% of the population, actually a little bit more than 50%, and there are women who love the NFL, no question about it, but that's where the growth is is in women, you know, if you don't go to Mexico or overseas or somewhere, the growth in the United States is with women. Why wouldn't you want women to be NFL fans? I don't get it. I mean, they spend money just like everybody else. Uh, and that's what all, you know, to me, when you make it so structured, there are people who either can't afford the structure, you know, financially, or they can't make the structure and so there's a lot of talent that's not being tapped into. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, lacrosse, all you need is a tennis ball and some sticks, and you can go find an open field or you can play indoors on a basketball court. You know, you can play anywhere. You can make your own goals. You know, it's like basketball. You don't need much. Uh, but the second you make it structured, you need a lot. Uh, yeah. And, 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 I, and I think that's – you know, this is why so many kids are quitting sports at 14, and sometimes the quitting is, you know, they, they say, oh, I'm going to go do cybersecurity or, you know, forensics or whatever they're going to do, but it's really self-cutting. And they're because ti- they're burnout. They're burnout. They're mm-hmm. tired. They're not willing, you know, this practicing year-round. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know who the best lacrosse player is at Gilman, but if he only came out the first day of practice in, in mid-February, he's not getting cut from that team. You know, right, you know, without doing the full year schedule. Yeah, he doesn't. And so this yeah. idea that I mean, we have all these coaches saying, "Oh, I want multi-sport athletes," but then they schedule all this stuff. So you can't be a multi-sport athlete. It's just crazy, mm-hmm. um, you know. And I want I want our athletes to play multiple sports, particularly like in lacrosse. If they play squash, we lose out kids because because they're lacrosse players, and they don't come out for squash. But the one thing you can't do in all these preseason, you know, out-of-season drills is competitiveness, how to win. You know, we, we had a kid yesterday down, and he's not going to play lacrosse, but he was down 2-0. And he, I wrote that one off as a 3-0 loss. He came back to win 13-11 in the fifth. And, you know, that, that, that you can't coach. That There's no way to, you know, simulate that. I mean, you can try as a coach. You can do all kinds of drills, but there's nothing – it makes people dig deep and find that. And, you know, that's that's what I think we're losing out on is letting these kids find themselves. It's just like writing. Instead of always telling them how to do it, instead of always having the structured drills and the structured practices, you know, be interesting to have an experiment where you just show up for practice and have a parent come up and get you involved in a conversation. It's intentional. So you're back and it's to the kids and just see what they do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And my guess is is they would be playing lacrosse. Yeah, and that would also make them, you know, formulate their own drills and become leaders and demonstrate a little bit more of that aspect of what a good team consists of is leadership and the seniors setting something up and figuring it out amongst each other where it's not always the coach telling you exactly what to do. I always tell my students, if you need me to be a better writer, I've failed as your teacher. You have to, the whole idea is to cut the, you know, the umbilical cord. 
And I don't think in education we cut the umbilical cord enough. And I don't think we do it in sports either. I mean, look at college sports. College sports is just all about coaching. You know, timeouts. This stuff should have been gone over in practice. You know, let these kids play. Mm-hmm. You know, NFL. I'd, you know, Johnny Unitas would go nuts today. You're not going to tell me what play to call late in the game. I know what's going on better than you do. Yeah. And it's true. Yeah. Uh, so, um, all right, I think we're getting to the end here. But what's what, what was the book recommendation? What is it called again? It's called Switching Fields by George Dorman, D-O-H-R-M-A-N, I think. He talks about sort of who's been excluded, and this is changing, from the U.S. soccer scene. And, you know, they're, they're changing and they're, they're getting – and you just got to read this whole thing, some of the crazy stuff that's done to keep people out. And it's not about just making the national team better. His argument is, is every time you exclude, you actually just hurt the game in general. Because most of these play people who are excluded are never going to play on a national team. But you grow the sport. And, uh, and it's, it's really a f- f- philosophy book, just the same way that I think Moneyball is about what to do if you know, you're David and you're playing Goliath. That's what that book is about. Mm-hmm. You, you know, the A's can't be the Yankees. They just can't outspend them. They go bankrupt. So what do you do? And it's a book about that. And, you know, I think uh, The Blind Side is a book about what we could do in America with education if we decided everybody was Michael Orr, that whatever talents that person had, we did everything to make them shine. And But we only do that with people who we say has some contributing value, you know, in this case being the, you know, left tackle uh, because of his size and his quickness and his speed but it really is about if you read that book and just say okay this kid's not well educated as differentiated from being smart education and we're going to educate him and we're going to throw all this money at him why can't we do that with a lot of other people Mm -hmm. you know Uh, so you know I, I just I I look at the world and say okay if we're doing something it's not working let's just try something else Failure, I mean, I didn't make this quote up, but, you know, Mark Twain, I mean, um, Thomas Edison or somebody like that said, you know, failure is just learning what doesn't work and going a new direction or something to that effect. And, you know, I don't think, I think you, there are failures. I'm not going to be here and be naive, but I think we put too much on, it's a, like a step-by-step process and everything has to go perfectly and you you get to the goal. No, it's a zigzag, it's falling off a cliff, it's climbing back up, and you just make sure the cliff doesn't kill you, you know, it's a tight thing, and that's a metaphor, not a real thing. Um, and I, I just think we have to think differently. I mean, we have too much mental illness in this country. Uh, we have too much mental illness in all these elite private schools, Gilman, St. Paul's, Loyola, and uh, a lot of this is stress that can be alleviated and it's not going to hurt the kids to alleviate some of that stress. It's actually going to help them. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. you know, you, I could go on and on. Love it. Well, you, um, yeah, I think podcast is your, your format. Have you ever done a podcast before? Or is this the first one? Every day I walk into class without the microphone and I podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just an actor. And I have a built-in, I have five performances a day. 
and they can't leave. They're required to be there. They don't you have to have pay. five a day, five well, times a day. Well, five, and some days I have, we go four out of five days a week. So some day, only one day I have five, and one day I have three, and four days, three days I have four. But, I mean, it's just, you know, I have a proscenium. It's my desk, and, you know, it's, <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 this is, this is what it's all about. I just, I think about things. I like to share my opinions. I like to talk. I'm Southern. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're perfect for the podcast. Thank you for coming in, Edward. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Chesare, thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you on the pickleball court. Well, no, we'll see you in an hour. Yeah. We'll see you in an hour. Mm-hmm.